We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order. Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, uh, we're joined by an array of guests because it's a work and coronavirus special. Uh, in this first part of the podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by a returning guest, Glenn O'Hara, uh, who's a professor of history at Oxford Brooks University. Welcome back to the podcast, Glenn. Hi, Will. It's nice to be here. Um, so the first question that I'd like to ask is um, for someone who is obviously in uh, the, the teaching profession, is, is, is teaching at uh, mm-hmm. a university at the moment. How has the pandemic um, affected the way uh, that you're writing your module or, or, or planning how you're going to be teaching uh, when universities come back? Well, the first thing to say is it creates a lot of uncertainty, doesn't it? Because no one really knows where we're going to be in late September, early October. So universities are having to plan for what they kind of call in the, in the great jargon of the sector kind of blended learning or hybrid learning and that's these modules that can spring at a moment's notice between online delivery and some face-to-face. I mean I think in answer to your question the effect on uh, us teachers trying to prepare it all is a huge amount of work and that's not to kind of get out the smallest violin in the world it's just to say that it's a huge start-up investment to really create two modules one that is all online and can spring all online at once, and one that has some face-to-face tutorials. Now, different universities are going to give different amounts of face-to-face, but first answer, a lot of hard work, mixed or blended mode modules where students, they will see the academics less, they will see each other less, but hopefully they will see each other to some extent and see us a little bit. Um, In regards to uh, face-to-face teaching, I know that uh, some people in the field have been critical of uh, how this would actually be done in terms of um, seminars, how practical uh, a seminar uh, would be uh, able to be conducted if people are wearing face masks and there's like a metre to two metre uh, distancing between mm. students. Mm. How do you think that's going to be achieved if it, it is achieved at all? Well, it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be different. I mean, I think it's important not to disguise the fact that if you go into a seminar room, it will not look the same and it will not be as interactive or or tactile as it would have been before. You know, I'm not going to be able to split them into group work because they're going to be one to two metres apart. I guess the chairs, there'll be like green stickers and red stickers on the chairs like you see in the House of Commons. I'm going to be in a mask and maybe a visor. Uh, I'm going to be at the front. I'm not going to be walking around. I'm not going to have a coffee. They're not going to be kind of coffees and things in the room. Uh, there's going to be some cleaning so that an hour becomes 50 minutes. Um, so it's going to be it's going to be different and it's going to be strange. Uh, I think that's just necessarily where we are. Now I guess some students who don't want to come face to face, they might be shielding, they might have health difficulties that make them more vulnerable. They, they will go online, they will go fully online, won't they, for that module, mm. into the, just purely into the online sessions. What that means is the groups will be smaller uh, and uh, because of distancing also the groups will be smaller. So you get that back, don't you? You get you get smaller groups, which gives you more contact with me, should you wish <laughs> such a terrible, a terrible fate. But on the other hand, you 
can't work in groups. You can't get that close to talk to the other students. So um, it's just different, I think. How do you think this is going to impact timetabling? Because I think anyone who's ever been to a university will know that um, timetabling for uh, people doing modules can be very, very tight. You know, uh, people running across from one part of the university to the other. Obviously, that's not going to be possible. So what what, what solutions are there, are, there, are there going to be to that issue? Well, timetabling is going to be a nightmare, quite frankly, and there's no point in hiding it. I don't work on timetabling. People in the university who are very clever with algebra and very clever with, um, you know, these timetabling software programs, they work on that. One thing that's going to be clearly arising from your question is you're going to have to put people and students, academics and students, teachers and students together uh, in blocks. So they can't be moving very far, can they? Mm. Uh, you're going to have to give them more time to move across. So therefore, you're going to have these shorter, slightly shorter sessions. So timetabling is going to be harder because you're going to need to squeeze people onto the same bits of campus, not just because they, you don't want them running around between uh, these smaller groups, but also because you don't want them moving further. You don't want people moving through these uh, sometimes quite small spaces all the time, long distances, because every time you move someone, you raise the infection rate, don't you? So you need to keep people in the same areas. Now, that's just one added complexity to timetabling that we'll also need to find loads of extra rooms, because if you're going to split people up more, you're going to need loads of extra rooms, which universities often don't have. Um, now, you talked about um, blocks there. Now, one of the suggestions has been that university uh, students can be in um, bubbles uh, in, in, in terms of accommodation and people on the same uh, courses so this uh, reduces the spread of infection mm. how realistic do you think uh, this will be because of course probably work better for first year students but for yeah. second and third year students how's that going to work do you think well i think your first point is right which is it does work better for first year students partly because of course you meet the people in your hall or your kind of cluster or your block and then you do hang out with them more but i mean i've not been too controversial on this issue to be honest because I think what faces vice chancellors and their leadership teams is just a complete perfect storm. Because remember, universities aren't just facing this. They're also facing a financial crisis, uh, a potential strike action, a pensions crisis, all of these issues. But on this one, I, I think I probably can be quite controversial, which is I just think it's a complete fantasy to expect students who quite rightly want to get out there and mix in the world and who also are at very low physical risk to themselves, especially of mortality, less so of, of morbidity, it's a complete fantasy to expect them to just bubble with other students in their course and their and their halls. Also, who's going to organise matching each module and course to each hall? That's yet another layer of timetabling complexity, which I just don't think universities have the capacity to work on. Uh, you know, we've seen some universities saying, you know, we're going to send round community support officers we're going to send the police around looking for house parties i just find this kind of darkly comic i just don't think that will happen uh, now you mentioned um strikes there and of course in uh, the past academic uh, year there have been um disruptions uh, partly uh, due to strikes do you think that in terms of um striking the that there may be a backlash from um, lecturers in, in, in regards to uh, these measures, or do you think that there will be 
a greater deal of um, sympathy uh, rather than a, a reaction that, no, we're not going to, to, to do this, we're going to strike. I think there are two countervailing pressures here. I think the first countervailing pressure towards agreement between management and unions and staff is that universe, some universities are in an existential crisis. Some universities could fail and the sector could get into a disastrous situation, could, I stress could. Recruitment seems to be holding up okay at the moment. And that glues staff and managers, vice-chancellors together because they're all in the same boat. On the other hand, I think the extra pressure of these workloads to prepare many more teaching materials and also to teach many more seminars because you split the students up into much smaller groups. I think that could literally be the block of the Jenga that you pull out or the, you know, the bucking bronco, the kind of bucking bronco game that you put the extra bit on the saddle and the, the bronco just blows up. I think that universities are on the edge of a staff social capital crisis because people are just working around the clock. Um, now, They've still got jobs and loads of people in a year's time are not going to have jobs. Equally, however, you've got to think about people who are also working at research, working at outreach, working at admin. And some people are, you know, on the edge here uh, of just not being able to do their jobs properly. So I think I think there'll be out of those two counterfeiting pressures will come a fractured sector where in some bits of the sector things get better. Mm. Industrial relations get better. But in some, they fall apart in some institutions, perhaps altogether. Oh, now, you mentioned some of the pressures there. Now, another pressure, of course, is, as you mentioned, um, the threat of some institutions going bust. Do you think that the um, government's uh, reaction, the, the government's policy of trying to get things back to normal is putting added pressure onto universities so that they are in a, in, in a situation where they feel that they have to do things like bring uh, students back to campuses when they're not uh, completely confident about that? Well, the first point to make there is there's no such thing as complete confidence in, in these days. And, you know, 18 to 21 year olds and me as a, a lecturer in my mid 40s, we could all get it anyway, even if we didn't go back onto campus or even if we did. So there's no such thing as zero risk. There is managing risk and universities will be trying we don't know how successfully to manage risk and they have to do that. But there's no doubt that the, the government's approach to the sector is to not boost it with money, is to not underpin it with grant money. It's to give them loans and it's to make them get more the same student, number of students in. It's to force them to get the students in. What that means is for good or ill, over a million young people in the next six weeks are going to be moving around this country and they're going to be moving in with new people in household to multiple occupation. You know, I leave it to listeners to think about what a great idea that is. It may or may not turn out to be a great idea. That is a deliberate policy by government not to support universities with bridging money, to support them only with loans, which means that universities have to get the students in. Um, uh, on the other hand, this is a deliberate strategy by government. Government doesn't want to underpin universities because it wants to restructure some of them, so-called weaker universities, at the bottom end of the traditional pyramid, towards regional skills and FE training. And if some of them have to be restructured, you know, if you're Dominic Cummings, all to the good. Uh, we're coming towards uh, the end of our discussion. It's been great uh, speaking to you, Glenn. And I've got one uh, final question. Of course, we've been discussing uh, the coronavirus and uh, its impact on work. Uh, but my final question is, 
when this is hopefully resolve the situation uh, with the virus. Uh, what one thing that you haven't been able to do are you looking forward to being able to do again? <laughs> um, how long have you got? <laughs> uh, um, I think I think this is going to sound really boring, but I'd love to go to the National Archives. Um, I just think that the feeling of actually researching history, which is what I love, is just... Uh, fantastic. The smell and the feel of the archive is just an incredibly visceral thing. And I'm not going to get to go to the National Archives this summer. I've got a whole book to write and I've got lots of articles to write and I'm not going to get to do any of them until probably next calendar year. So, you know, I'd love to go to the National Archives with its lovely lake and its lovely swans and its fountain and see some colleagues and have a coffee and have a gossip and look at some documents. Now, that might that may sound very work focused, but there <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's something that I completely agree with because that would be uh, <laughs> something that I would uh, uh, enjoy doing and I, I hope that uh, you'll be able to do it. And I'm sure a lot of our uh, listeners will hope that you'll be able to get back yeah. there very soon. Thanks we'll once again. Up. We'll meet up. Yeah. <laughs> In this part of the podcast, I'm delighted uh, to be joined by uh, Michael Bell, uh, who is a leading member of the co-op party in uh, the northeast and is running uh, for the co-op parties NEC for the northeast and North Cumbria and is also a um, club secretary uh, club steward uh, for a uh, social club uh, welcome back to the podcast Michael yeah thanks for having us back Will um, so uh, this podcast is talking about um, how coronavirus has affected people uh, in their day-to-day um, work now. Obviously, uh, you work at a, a social club. Uh, so, That's to begin right. with, uh, I'd like to ask: um, How do you think um, coronavirus has affected the hospitality industry? I mean, obviously, we were extremely badly hit. We uh, there was no part of our industry that wasn't um, taken off in uh, during lockdown. Um, they c- certain parts of the sector I think would, would find it harder than we did mm. um, being a social club we, uh, we we're quite independent we don't have a brewery breathing down our neck wanting money when we're not selling beer uh, which a lot of small tide pubs would a lot of leaseholder pubs would um, a lot of clubs like us tend to own their own building because they were bought back in the the heyday of clubs in the 40s and 50s. So we own a very large building, so there's no rent for us. So we were quite well placed to weather that, whereas uh, a lot of uh, other places certainly wouldn't find themselves in those circumstances. I think being a, being a club and the sort of, some of the, the typical characteristics of a club made us a little bit more resilient. Um, now, um, now that a lot of um, parts of the hospitality industry, including uh, social clubs and pubs, have opened again how are you finding um people going into them do you, are people still uh, nervous are, are they somewhat hesitant to go in what, what's your experience been like yeah i mean it, uh, certainly we haven't seen the kind of crowds that i was expecting on july 4th i mean we we opened on july 4th not everywhere did um about half the pubs in in our village opened that day and the other half didn't um and I do feel kind of like the, uh, the government strategy to it sort of left a lot to be desired. I think a lot of publicans, certainly that I've spoken to, felt that we were just opening our doors and just waiting to see what happened that mm. day. 
which didn't really um, feel great on the day, I must say. But they, we, we weren't inundated. I'm sure you'll, there are always, you're always going to find photographs of some busy bar in Soho or something like that. But I don't think that was the case all over. And I do think a lot of people waited a few days, waited a week, some people waited a month. You know, I have customers who are still shielding, but then I've got quite an older clientele. Um, so, yeah, people are cautious. People are largely following the rules. Not everyone um, is happy about it. Obviously, mm. some aspects of the public health measure are a bit polarising or a bit being dragged into the, you know, the, the culture war, as it were. There are people who get upset that, that I wear a mask, for example. You know, they're mm. like being reminded that there's a pandemic on. But, but generally, people are pretty well receptive to it. I think that the um, one thing I've been really impressed with generally is, is pubs and clubs themselves, the measures that they've put in place, you know, because the, the government guidelines have obviously been very, uh, well, the government communications have been a farce, frankly. We saw that last night with the um, new regional lockdowns in parts of the north uh, announced on Twitter at 10 o'clock. But um, where the uh, the measures that pubs have to put in place aren't necessarily clear and to be fair there's obviously not a one-size-fits-all for pubs because we're all very different but i have been really impressed with this sort of creativity and the innovation of the sector because every pub's different you go into you go into pubs as i do i tend to stick with the quiet ones at the moment though and uh, and every place has a slightly different system and you know there are places with apps to order from there are places um where you have to book a table a bit like a, a restaurant book yourself a time slot to have a couple of pints there's pubs that are implementing one-way systems and that they've really reorganized their building in order to have those one-way systems in so if you, you know one door in one door out people who want to go for cigarettes there's mm. bars and time off that have limits on how much you can drink so it keeps people moving on makes means the place doesn't fill up too much um even the track and trace, you know, we've got a, a signing in book. We're pretty low, um, low fi at the club. But you know, there's places where there's a QR code for you to scan. There's places where you walk in and you're you're asked to text a number um, so that your details are saved. So there's real, um, like the, the diversity of policies that clubs have had, and um, pubs, sorry, mostly pubs have had to come up with, is really quite impressive. Especially when there's a bit of a vacuum in what the governments advising Mm. um how do you think that um the balance between um ensuring that the economy uh, is still working still moving and the concerns about public health have been uh, from the government do you think that perhaps there should have been um perhaps less of a, a a focus on the economic side because obviously we have seen um, spiking up uh, since uh, in, in certain areas since the lockdown has eased. Do you, do you think that there was perhaps too much concern placed on that? Or do you think that the, the, the balance was about right? Well, I mean, I, you know, I, do, I don't work in the Treasury, so I, um, I haven't seen, you know, the, the, the stats that they've got on mm. how much, the, the, you know, how far the, the economy could bend without snapping. So I won't second guess anyone else's job, but I will say that I do think that the, the focus on early reopening and also early eases of other aspects of lockdown, to me, really felt like a government that was chasing good headlines amidst a number of scandals. And it, you know, it, it left a bad taste in my mouth. It really felt like it had a public health measure that was being run as a media 
strategy, you know, a media spin strategy. So yeah, like I'm, I'm not gonna um, necessarily weigh up, you know, the, the economy versus public health. I haven't seen those uh, spreadsheets, but I, but I certainly do feel that, um, as I say, it was it was brought a lot was brought forward to try and generate good publicity, in my opinion. Mm. Um, how much of an impact do you think uh, the changes that have been made um, to uh, pubs and club, uh, social clubs uh, will have on the on the future going forward? When you know, hopefully, things are. Uh, more back to a, a semblance of normality. Do you think things will just go back to how they were before, or do you think that there will be um, some lasting impacts on the way that uh, pubs and, and, and clubs operate? Well, yeah, I mean, in the immediate term, I think that, you know, unfortunately, you have, because pubs and clubs are having to restrict their capacity, you have a lot of places where their business model is only really viable if they're full on a Friday, Saturday and Sunday. And they can't be full anymore. They're not allowed to be. You know, it's once they run out of seats, that's that's it. Mm. Um, it's less of an impact for us. We've got a lot of space in our bar because it's an old club building. It, you know, we our club was a an old co-op general store which which we bought in about 1921. Um, so I, you know, I haven't. I can just keep opening rooms that we that we don't <laughs> usually use and keep adding more people in. But a lot of places just won't be viable running on a, on a 30 person capacity. You know, that's not how their mm. business model works we're a non-profit essentially you know anything we make gets reinvested back places that have shareholders breathing down their necks aren't gonna gonna find that but um that's in the immediate term of the impact on individual pubs i'm i have been wondering how it's going to affect drinking culture generally i think that we've noticed a bit of a shift people are trying to avoid busy periods and drink during quiet periods which means the quiet periods get busier and the, the old busy periods get quieter and it sort of levels out and i do wonder if maybe that'll That'll be something that stays. Um, even small things like, you know, our customers love to stand at the bar. They're not allowed to do that anymore. Um, I do wonder once they're allowed, whether they'll just they'll just get quite happy sitting. Um, that's obviously not a massively consequential uh, impact, but it's, it's, it's the sort of thing I wonder about in my work. And also just during lockdown as well, people got used to drinking in their friends' gardens, you know, on mm. deck chairs, sat apart. I wonder if, at least for the rest of the summer, a lot of those people don't feel, you know, going back to the pub is, is a necessity for them. Now they've got mm. quite used to just getting some cans and sitting in the grass. Um, now, I'd just like to uh, quickly turn, as I mentioned um, at the uh, start of our conversation, uh, to your uh, candidacy for the co-op NEC. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, NEC, yeah, yeah, for the co-op party NEC. Um, how have you been finding uh, campaigning uh, whilst this has been uh, uh, going on? So in terms of campaigning, it's quite a small electorate. Um, we're elected on a regional basis and my region, the northeastern North Cumbria, has, I, I believe it's the smallest in terms of membership and it's not, they're not usually high turnout elections. So the, um, campaigning isn't, uh, not like the Labour NEC elections where, you know, they've got these, they're doing videos and posters and all this sort of <laughs> stuff and you know, uh, trying to get go viral within Labour Twitter. There's none of that really. It's it's more about um, speaking to the the members that that you know that you have connections with across the region and asking them what their co- campaigning issues are. Talk to them about how you'd uh, get to terms with those issues. It's a much more informal, uh, you know, small affair. But um, but that doesn't mean that it's an inconsequential election either. It's uh, 
for, for, you know, for, from my perspective, it's very important. Uh, and, and what sort of things uh, do you uh, hope that you'd be able to do if you if you are elected? Yeah, so I'm running on a, a platform of um, a, a few things, really. Primarily, I, I really want to defend, well, not defend, because that makes it sound like it's under attack, but really, like, um, emphasise our party's independence. I think that that sometimes we're tret a lot like a faction of Labour, and I think that it's possible that over time we could be sort of absorbed into, into a position like that. Um, I've certainly heard at conference before people from the co-op societies, you know, saying, oh, you know, the, the more you pass these rule changes to be aligned with the Labour Party, the more, you know, we start to think we're affiliated to you, not to Labour. And I think the link between the Labour and co-op is essential, and I think that we wouldn't survive without that link as a party. But, uh, but really, um, for me, it's about asserting our, our independence as an independent party, making sure that people understand that we are. The other thing is um, increasing our profile. Like our ma- one of our major problems in the party is that so many people haven't heard of us. If you're not a, a real political nerd, you probably haven't heard of the co-op party. Um, there are certain things that I'd like to see changed. There, were, there are some rules around who can be a Labour and co-op candidate that um, I'd like to see at least revised. Um, you know, if, if you're an MP, a Labour MP, during your term, you join the co-op party, you decide and when you go for re-election, you want to run as Labour and co-op. That's not allowed, unfortunately. Um, so that keeps our numbers down. Um, if you're a candidate in a multi-member council election and you're Labour and co-op, but you're two running mates are just Labour and you, you can't stand as Labour and co-op, unfortunately. And as if, you know, I think that really harms our visibility as a party. Mm. Um, so those are the sorts of things. And just raising, raising our profile, generally I do a lot of work, or I did before lockdown, going around the region to Labour events, but to all sorts of public events as well, and just trying to get our branding out there, talk to people who've never heard of us before, let them know what we're about. Uh, so that's some of the, the things that I'd, I'd be hoping that I could push for within an elected position on the party. Uh, well, um, uh, we're coming towards the end of our uh, discussion, uh, Michael. It's been uh, great speaking to you. And I've got one uh, final question. Uh, I asked you this uh, um, question before, uh, but once things are uh, finally <laughs> uh, sorted out uh, in relation uh, to coronavirus, what, what kind of things are you hoping to be able to to do when things are back to a a semblance of normality or at least more normal than they are at the moment? Well, I was supposed to go to Oregon um, in, in the States, um, obviously, uh, in October, just before the US presidential election, which would have been amazing to see that from the ground. But um, unfortunately, that's not happening. I don't even think you're allowed to go to America at the minute. So hopefully when it, if things are all sorted, although it won't be during the election, I'd uh, like to, to revisit that plan and go to Oregon. Uh, well, I think that sounds like a, a great uh, plan and uh, I and I'm sure uh, all the people listening will hope that you'll be able to uh, get there soon. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks for having us, Will. It's been a pleasure. In this final part of our coronavirus and work special, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, the founder and director of our partner, the Centre Think Tank, 
Torin Wilkins, welcome back to the podcast, Torin. Thank you so much for having me on again. Um, so the first question uh, that I'd like to ask in relation to coronavirus and work is, from your own um, personal experience, how has it been dealing with work and the, vi- uh, and the virus at the same time? So it's, it's been quite weird because, I mean, um, I've, I've just got out of university. So uh, university itself completely changed, let alone then coming back. And whereas it would normally be a case of finding a job and then, you know, working somewhere. I mean, I'm, I'm close to both London and Cambridge. So what I was expecting to do would have been something to do with working in a city of some kind. Um, and it's quite a different experience, I think, when you that sort of everything is put on hold so the whole experience of you know going out to work and everything else is is completely put on hold Mm. because you know the job market at the moment I heard that story the other day of there being one job with you know hundreds of applicants just for that one position which was um you know I think it was clerical staff at a hotel or something so for me it's kind of put everything every plan that I had on hold um and, you know, it has a silver lining that, yeah, it's meant that I've had more time to, to focus on, on running center. But overall, it's put everything on hold and has meant that really doing stuff from home is the only option that I currently have. How do you think the government have responded to uh, the challenges that people who are uh, working uh, have faced uh, with the virus? Do you think that they've responded to it well or do you think they've not done enough in terms of helping people getting back to work and, and, and helping people manage work whilst also dealing with the pandemic? Well, I think the first thing is that the actual end to the, the income support schemes, the furlough schemes that the government had has come too quickly. Um, at the end of the day, we the, the virus levels and the number of deaths has decreased a huge amount since we peaked a few months ago. The only problem is that we don't know about whether there'll be a second wave, what was going to happen there. So I think at the moment, it's it's kind of too early to, to take those uh, support mechanisms away, especially as there is still that virus in the system. And that means that um, employers will probably be a bit more hesitant about getting everything back to running as usual. Um, so in that sense, they've perhaps underestimated the fact that we are we are dealing with a, with a virus here and if it does start to spread again they need to have in plan have plans in place essentially to make sure that those people are actually able to get back onto furlough schemes quickly if needed which i have not seen yet and the other thing is that there are self-employed people at the moment who haven't been receiving support at all um, who, you know, there, there are a lot of people, it's about 3 million people who have been excluded from the current government schemes. And those people are in a situation where as much as for some people, they're going back to work and they're getting back into it, they are either in a very bad financial situation or their businesses have gone under completely because they were self-employed or uh, they were, you know, in a, a small private limited company. Um, and and the, in that sense, it's, one of those things where, yeah, okay, the government has done some some big sort of big bang um, commitments to spending lots of money, but actually, unfortunately, when I sp- speak to people who are you know in small businesses and who are self-employed, they just feel completely forgotten. So I think it's one of those things. Yeah, they put in the the big policies, but they have forgotten about an awful lot of people in the process. Mm. And you mentioned people uh, being uh, excluded there. I think that the uh, think tank is doing uh, something regarding that. What exactly are you doing? 
So at the moment, we, we're putting together a paper and we're speaking to lots of people who have been excluded. We've got a survey out at the moment um, and we are trying to find solutions for each and every one of those groups. The thing that hasn't been done so far is that there's been a lot of activism in terms of getting it out there that those people have been excluded. The one thing that hasn't been done that we felt needed to be was actually a full plan of how to ensure that those people who are excluded are actually included in the government's programs, um, not just for the the end time uh, that we have at the moment until this this pandemic hopefully ends, but just in case there is a second wave, we need to have those support mechanisms in place. You know, at the end of the day, those people who have been excluded, they need to get some money to actually mean that they can continue you know, with their business. Because a lot of the time, although we may think that they have no impact on biz big businesses, if they are supplying those big businesses, then that is an awful, awful thing to happen because it disrupts the supply chain as well. So whether you're in favor of big businesses or small businesses, whatever the government is thinking right now, I think the point is that to let those businesses go without support when those people have done what the government have asked, you know, the number of people that I had talking to me saying, look, I, I went with the government's tax system for, you know, for um, self-employed and for small businesses, the payee system, and then they haven't given us any help on top of that, mm -hmm. despite the fact that we played by the rules, we've done what they asked, we kept all of these records meticulously, and then the government to turn around and say, we're not going to help them, we sort of looked at that situation and said, well, you know, we are towards finding policy solutions for things. We might as well put our heads together. And, you know, in, time, in terms of inside the think tank, everyone has been working really, really well at finding solutions for each of these individual issues. And we're almost there. So it's one of those things. We've managed to find it. But yet the government hasn't and the government has rejected solutions as they've come in. So I, I think at the end of the day, the government has not done a particularly good job on this one. Um, now, another paper uh, that you've also um, recently brought out is uh, protecting working from home uh, after COVID-19, which you can uh, read on uh, the centre's uh, website. Uh, what was the um, what was your reasoning behind uh, why you wanted to do this this paper in particular? So uh, the reasoning for me was actually my mum has been working from home for, for years, well before COVID-19 um, was a thing. In fact, before SARS was even a thing. So that was quite a long while ago now. Um, so she's been working from home even before it became something that was even normal in terms of the workplace. So I've seen what that's like and what actually having someone going into work is like. And I think actually working from home in terms of her balancing having kids and everything else was much easier for her to do. So that was really where it all started and where I decided, you know, actually I would like to go out and write a, a paper saying, okay, so at the moment, homeworking has become incredibly common because people are, are forced to stay at home, so they are having to work from home. Now, some of them may love it, some of them may not, but for those people who do like it, this is to essentially say, look, we haven't got rules that are good enough at the moment to allow people to work from home. So we actually need to put in place some rules that say, if you ask your employer, rather than at the moment, the situation which is they simply have eight reasons that they can pick from. And if they just decide that it's one of those, that's it. There's not really much the employer can do to now saying, okay, if that employer wants to say, we're not going to allow them to work from home is quite simply then to go, okay, but they have to prove it in that sector. Can that sector mm -hmm. not work from home? Because I understand if it is a frontline nurse, they're not going to be able to work from home. You know, that's not going to happen. 
But if they're doing something that is, um, you know, more of an office job, then there may well be a very good case there to say, well, actually, no, that person should be allowed to work from home and to choose where they work because actually it's shown to have lots of benefits in terms of improving productivity um, and in terms of actually just improving people being able to be employed by the business. So it has lots of benefits um, and I've seen it myself, which is why I decided to write it. Hmm. Um, now, one of the uh, comparisons you make is between the situation uh, in the UK uh, with regards to uh, people working from home and that in different uni- uh, European countries, uh, Germany, the Netherlands, Finland, etc. Yeah. Why do you think that the UK has sort of fallen behind in this area? Well, the reason we use those particular countries was, was mainly because they all have a certain lesson for the UK to learn in terms of what they have done that we haven't quite been able to do. So, for instance, the Netherlands, the big, big lesson that we took away from that was if you want to make working from home actually work for employees and employers, then you need to make sure that they have good enough internet connection. Which is quite interesting in the light of Huawei and the the whole 5G network not being not getting the go ahead. So there were countries like that, and then there were countries like Germany and Finland, which were on the other end of things. Which was once people are working from home, employees themselves need to know that they will actually have some kind of protection. Um, and so Germany has an entire legal framework just dedicated to, to flexible working and people being able to work from home or on flexible working times. And then the Finland, uh, in Finland, on the other hand, you have a situation there where it's lots of laws protecting workers, but also they use things like collective bargaining and you know, uh, 20% of workers on supervisory boards at the very least, that's sort of the, the minimum limit is 20%. So they have that ability to have a say in their, their company so that firstly they can get home working in the first place, but also if, if their employer says, look, this just isn't possible, there is better communication so that rather than now, it's simply a situation where you say, I'd like to work from home, and then your employer gets that say and that's done, you can actually do it on a wider basis where they can say, okay, for that type of worker, it is possible or it isn't possible because of this reasoning. So it, it, it improves in general how a company operates and communication between workers and employees. So there are a huge number of lessons just from those three countries that we highlighted, not just in home working, which was part of it, but also just more widely Areas that, yeah, okay, they benefit home working, but actually across the board, they are very good policies, as I said. Mm. 20% of workers on supervisory boards, collective bargaining, two things that I think genuinely should be taken up. Mm. Um, Now, uh, another point that you make in the paper is regards to the environmental impact of working Mm. from home. Do you think that this is something that perhaps in advocating it, given the... uh, greater focus that people perhaps have on on the environment environmental concerns in the, the the past few years is something that should be focused on when advocating for a greater support from people working from home well I, I certainly think the the interesting bit about the study that we we linked in the paper was it was actually not even looking at it from an environmentalist perspective it was actually looking at it from the workers perspective so people who are employed by a company who choose to work from home the, the thing that that study said was that they actually feel that one of their biggest contributions in terms of cutting down on, on their emissions 
was by working from home. So I think it's certainly one of those things where the people actually doing it feel like they're having an impact. But in terms of reducing congestion and making it so that cars don't have to constantly stop and start, which is another thing that contributes to pollution, it means that actually the roads are clearer for those who do decide to go into work, but also for those who don't, they're not using those emissions for journeys that they may not actually need to make. So I think there is, there's a clear environmental case in terms of pushing for, for working from home. And I think, yeah, that, that is something that we've, we've tried to push as we've done this is saying, you know, this, this may be something that improves people's, um, you know, ability to work and to be productive and to actually feel that, you know, they're happy in the job that they're in because they have more choice. But also a side benefit of that is that it's very good for the environment. And it means that, you know, people who do it actually get that, that ability to say, well, you know what, I'm actually doing something for the environment as well as being happier at work. Mm. Do you think that uh, part of the issue with encouraging or uh, at least helping people to have the option uh, to work at home more is the perception from some people perhaps that by working at home it's almost like you're not really working as such or that some people might suggest that oh well uh, you know if you've got this this freer time and this lack of uh, supposed uh, pressure from uh, outside forces like your your boss that you're more likely to um, skive off. Do, do you think that it's important to tackle those perceptions and correct them in in order to get this as a uh, a more widely supported uh, policy? Well, I think one of the interesting things was uh, looking at the Netherlands in that perspective because there there was a good quote which was basically that they in that sense they don't care where they work they just care that they get the job done. Mm. And actually, as long as they get it done, it doesn't really matter if they do it at home in a restaurant or at the office. You know, if they if they get the work done, that's that's really what they want to know about. And I, I kind of think that that's that's perhaps the biggest thing, which is that you know, again, it's it's one of those things that is a choice for that employer at the end of, or the employee at the end of the day is whether or not they're going to work at home. Um, and if they want to do it, sticking them in an office where they don't actually want to be is not necessarily likely to help them very much mm. in terms of saying, you know, we want you to be more productive, but also we're not going to allow you to work where you want to is not going to really help their productivity levels. Mm. So I think often one of the things that is difficult is then, you know, trying to compare when people are working at home versus not and everything else. But overall, all we've seen is is increased productivity, people wanting to go to those workplaces because they have more choice over where they work. So overall, I haven't really seen anything in that sense that suggests the the perception is is a right perception. Mm. Um, but as ever, I think it's really one of those things of talking about working from home more because I think as much as perceptions have built up, it's not really the top debated you know, subject at the moment. Um, it's hardly like we're talking about Brexit and home working as the two biggest things. Um, so I think part of it is just doing the research and then saying, actually, yeah, there is this perception, but, you know, in reality, this is what happens, which is a lot of what running a think tank ends up trying to be about is saying there may be these deep seated, you know, sort of things that people think go on. Sometimes they're right, but other times the evidence says otherwise. Uh, we're coming towards uh, the end of our discussion. It's been uh, great to have you on again, Torin. And I've got one final question. This special has obviously been about 
uh, coronavirus and work and the way that people are, are coping with the pandemic as they're getting back to work or, or working from home. How do you think the virus will change the way that we work? So it's an interesting question. I mean, I expect even without more regulation or anything else in place that we will work from home a lot more than usual. Um, I, I think that that has become something that has almost become deep-seated in there. And I also think it's an interesting question because we don't know what will happen in terms of the virus because it's down to low levels, but it has not been completely eradicated. You know, New, New Zealand shows it can be eradicated, but it's when that happens and how long we are living with this virus. So I think it would take a very long time for things to get back to normal. And I don't think normal will be what we knew before. I think things like home working will be sort of things that people expect businesses to do rather than as a luxury that may have been there because they know that it works. They've been there, they've done it. So there are a lot of stuff like that, which I, I think will change. Um, but in, in overall sense, you know, the, the, the way the economy work won't change, but I think there will be individual things like that, which will. Uh, well, as you say, I'm, I'm sure that it's something that we'll have to uh, wait and see. Uh, if people want to find out more about uh, the Centre Think Tank, how can they do so? Uh, you can go on uh, centreuk.co.uk, which is our website. And we are also uh, at Centre Think Tank on both Twitter and Facebook. Thanks once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you too. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean or YouTube. You can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.